Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I see how they get their information. And I can't believe that they know it. They haven't done the work necessary, haven't done the checks necessary, haven't done the care necessary. I have a great suspicion that they don't know that this stuff is don't know and they're intimidating people. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tam Lou Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. This is a podcast with me, a philosopher, and Dave, a psychologist and noted anti-Semite. <laughs> Every uh, time you say that you're a philosopher, I feel like quoting the Princess Bride and saying, I don't think that you know what that <laughs> understand what that word really means. I, I don't think that word means what you think <laughs> what it What you think it means, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, on this show, we discuss issues in science and ethics, and we do it in a fairly informal way, as if both of us were in a bar. And sometimes we're, we're actually drinking, so... <laughs> you are. We get, I we believe somebody, somebody made note of that in our iTunes review. That uh, Yeah, I don't think they made note that it was me that was doing the drinking. <laughs> I think they said both of us. But actually, it was a listener, Cheryl Namius, who I thought described the spirit of the show perfectly... She said, sitting here with Eddie, that's her husband, listening to one of your shows. Actual philosopher Eddie, not me. <laughs> yeah, that's an actual philosopher Eddie, not me. <laughs> listening to one of your shows, 10 minutes in, we've learned about meth, the Big Lebowski, and swingers, waiting for some philosophy. <laughs> I think she's uh, still there with like a couple of tears down her eyes, like days yeah. later, still waiting for the philosophy. <laughs> so let's not let's not keep Cheryl and anyone else who may be listening, if there are any of you out there. Uh, let's not keep you waiting another ten minutes, and let's start with today's episode. They must be the most contented people in the world. They have no crime, no punishment, no violence, no laws, no police, judges, rulers, or bosses. They believe that the gods put only good and useful things on the earth for them to use. In this world of theirs, nothing is bad or evil. The one characteristic which really makes the Bushmen different from all the other races on earth is the fact that they have no sense of ownership at all. Where they live, there's really nothing you can own. Only trees and grass and animals. They live in a gentle world. So that was a clip from the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy, a movie I actually haven't seen in a long time. And uh, the reason we're bringing... since I was a kid. I yeah, mean, yeah. I, I mean, I remember I like a Coke twelve bottle. years old or something. Yeah, it was. Sort I remember of... it was a Coke bottle, um, a black guy. <laughs> there was a, some Bushmen, right? Is that a oh, racist? That's racist. Is, is that that's racist. racist. <laughs> <laughs> you just... I, I think that's their legitimate name. <laughs> I don't. 
I mean, I feel like about? I I feel like when when you say Bushman, it sounds much more racist than when I say. No, given your... he, no, he was an actual Bushman. Yes, I'm Saharan Africa, uh, who finds a Coke bottle and hijinks ensue. This is actually a topic that that we've touched on before. There's a deep concern. The concern is, could it be that we're not really building up a science of the human mind? We're just building up a science of you know college sophomores. Traditionally, this has been uh, a concern about. Well, how do you know that you can conclude anything about human nature from looking at college undergraduates? Those guys, uh, there's no guarantee that a college undergraduate is has the same uh, psychology as, say, a Bushman. Or even just an American adult. Right, right. You know, so, or, or so, someone in East Asia, someone in uh, right. the Arab countries or Israel or whatever. I mean, yeah. there's no reason to think necessarily a priori. To use a philosophical term. Whoa. That, uh, yeah, see? <laughs> Ceteris paribus or something. Mutatis Pro tanto. <laughs> um, but recently, there's an even deeper concern, which is that not only are is, is this population not representative, um, that in fact it might be the least representative if, if, right. the, if the entire population of the Earth is taken into consideration. And a couple of years ago, some psychologists with sort of an anthropological bent published a paper called The Weirdest People in the World. And uh, this offered up a pretty serious criticism of the current state of the behavioral sciences and its focus on Western educated, industrialized, rich democracies. Um, which is what WEIRD stands for. Which is what WEIRD stands for. And uh, the point that they made is not only are our subjects, our participants in, in many of our psychological studies, not representative of the world, but in fact, they are exactly the opposite. They are the, the weirdest people in the world. That they are the most exotic subculture that you could possibly study. Right. Great. And we should, and we should give some names here so that the, the lead author is a man named Joseph Henrik. He's, a, he's originally in anthropology. He got his PhD in anthropology and is now at University of British Columbia in the psychology department and also economics because apparently – Anthropology is so divided as a field right now between the biological anthropologists and the cultural right. anthropologists that there was no it. way they could agree to have uh, <laughs> Henrik in there. Yeah, uh, and then Steve, and Heine, also... Steve Heine and Aaron Orenzian, all all of these people are at, at um, uh, University of British Columbia, and we'll put a link with this paper actually because I, I think that it's it's really a great paper and and it's it's been influential and it and it's a weird thing it, its influence keeps sort of getting getting bigger it gets right to the heart of what it is that especially you guys are doing as right. psychologists I mean, uh, as, pe as people who actually gather the data that you just talked and about. also though what uh what we do as philosophers especially philosophers who try to have their work be empirically informed so whenever you guys put out one of your studies and the you know and your conclusions or discussions start you know raving about this new discovery you've made about human nature philosophers will take that seriously sometimes to support an, their own ethical theory or undermine uh, an opponent's ethical which theory. which is really represents progress by many philosophers who would just state their own intuition usually <laughs> <laughs> that's true yes um, so so let's talk about what what henrik you know what led him to do cross-cultural behavioral studies in the first place he was part of this uh, group of psychologists i think studying under the anthropologist well, sorry anthropologists studying under the anthropologist uh, robert boyd what they were looking to do is to discredit the homo economicus theory of human behavior to show that people really don't behave in ways that are 
just trying to promote uh, immediate self-interest. And they were doing this experiment, and they they started out doing this on American undergraduates, like everybody else does. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about the ultimatum game, but let's just describe it again really quickly. Yeah. The ultimatum game, I'm given $20, and, and if I'm the proposer, uh, which is randomly selected, and I can now offer Dave any amount uh, of the $20 from 1 to 20 and then Dave can either accept the money and walk away with however much money I've proposed to him, or he can reject the offer and neither of us will get any money. Right. Right? So homo economicus, which is the theory which predicts that human beings will always act to promote their own self-interest, would predict, right, that I would offer you $1, and that you would accept that $1. I would offer you $1 because it's the least amount of money that I can offer. And you would accept it because it's uh, – it's, $1 is better, it's better than, than no dollar. Right. So right. imagine you ask people, is having $1 better or, or worse or equivalent to having $0, right? You would expect most people would say, of course, having $1 is better than $0, except for that they're willing to actually forego the $1 to punish – uh, the proposer for making what they perceive as an unfair offer, and it, it should be noted that that this this view of homo economicus or this this standard rationality account of rationality as self interest, the way that economists describe it, only would predict that this might be the case in in the interaction of two strangers. Because if in fact I know that it's Tamler and we're friends and right. we're put into this, then then there are good rational reasons for rejecting the offer to punish you. But in an anonymous situation. Uh, where we're not going to interact again, then there's no reason that you need to send a message to me or anything right. like that. You, right. You're not. We're not going to meet again. Right. So, but what would actually happen in 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 these situations? So, say I did offer you three dollars out of the twenty dollars. What would you do? I I would say fuck this <laughs> asshole. You, neither of us are getting anything. Right. Right. So so my so my you desire would cost to punish yourself three dollars. Yep, I'm willing. To, to, I'm willing to take to say, a hit. Fuck you. Yeah. I'm willing yeah. to take a hit to tell you to fuck off. Um. And and that is an interesting finding. I mean, it's, it speaks volumes about about how maybe my emotion of anger kicks in, or maybe my just sense of what what the the just thing to do is. All, all kinds of things. But the one thing that it does it te- seem it tells to, you about also your yeah. expectations about fairness, right? right? Exactly. Like that. Uh, because when you do this experiment with American undergraduates, the average offer is half. Yeah. I think it's a little, or is that I the think it's a little under. Sorry, that's the medium. It's, offer, it's slightly right? under. That's the half. most common offer. Right. It's slight, the average is slightly under. I, I exactly. do know, though, that Tamler has played this multiple times and always offers $1. <laughs> Why? Because I'm Jewish? Just get it out of there. <laughs> no, it's just a coincidence that you're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and then very importantly also, people reject low offers. So people will reject usually any offer below 40%. Right. All of this is just a prelude yeah. to say that he had the idea as a graduate student of trying to test this across cultures to show that it's not just American college students, but everybody isn't uh, homo economicus. Everybody behaves in this way that is contrary to self-interest if they think they have been treated unfairly. And he went to the Machuganga, this small-scale society in the Peruvian a- Amazon, and ran <sighs> these ultimatum game experiments. And what happened was... I think he made that up. <laughs> so people named the Machuganga. <laughs> oh, you sounds like that. something my daughter made up. Right, yeah. so he goes there to try to affirm that people behave in this way that's contrary to their self-interest 
But what ended up happening was they actually didn't reject any low offers. They were more they behaved more selfishly than American college students. And originally, uh, this was a problem for his theory, although it led to his career and and his uh, explosion of fame because he got a huge MacArthur grant to then go and study the behavior in these kinds of normal economic games in small-scale societies all across the world. So now, starting with that demonstration that, in fact... When you look at these small-scale societies and compare them to the U.S., you get these radical differences. That... <clears throat> and so using this sort of takedown, like this, the structure of this demonstration they in this BBS article, they went through and said, look, this might be a deeper concern across a number of domains of paradigmatic examples of what the human mind is like. So they go through and they present a review of various findings that actually have these, these at least on the face of it, distressing cross-cultural differences. Should we Everything, give some examples? Yeah, the most powerful one to me is the, the Mueller-Lyer illusion, uh, which, which is that you may have seen it in... It's a, it's a classic uh, visual... Uh, illusion of visual perception. It's published in a lot of intro psych textbooks. It's two lines with um, th- that are actually the exact same length. It's just that, that the line on top has arrows pointing in toward the line and the the line on the bottom has arrows pointing out pressed up against the line i don't know that's the best way to describe it but you can except that it's the reverse the one where the arrows are sort of pointing into the line looks significantly longer than the one uh, the the alligators that are are, pointing whatever the the, go go to our website and look at at the movie that's right you'll see that Um, one looks significantly longer than the other even though they're the exact same length right and while you're on the web, go rate us on iTunes. <laughs> oh, yeah, we forgot to say that. Go rate us on iTunes. There's a little fucks. middle plug. We're putting, in, we're putting a free podcast out. That's the least you can do. You lazy piece um, of shit. Uh, so so the, I think that this is the most, the, the most problematic example because it gets right to, to one of the most famous claims in cognitive science, which is that if there are any sort of universals in the human mind, uh, w- one of the best candidates for what would be universal is visual perception. And so, so there's a famous sort of uh, view of the mind that it's, that it's organized by, uh, by these sort of little sub-processes called modules that uh, just compute information and output it to, to the more general cognitive system and they're actually impervious to things like knowledge and belief and desires that and that visual perception is one of these things. It's like a little subcomputer. It takes in your visual perception, does some calculation, and then boom, spits it out. And you to you and to me, it looks very, very different, even though it's the same. And that's this quirk of the visual perception system. And so it doesn't matter what culture you're raised in, what time period you're raised in. The, the mind is the mind. And we should expect that everybody falls prey to these visual illusions. So... Because there is so much, at least, evidence that I find compelling that that visual perception works this way, it's really like the first time I saw this graph that that is in the paper where he plots the strength of the illusion across across these different cultures. It kind of blew my mind. So the the plot is that um, if you ask people to estimate the difference in the size in the length of the lines, uh, it's only Americans who who 
estimate that they're really different. And then you go to some cultures and they're like, no, that just looks the same. There's no difference in the length of those. Lines. And that still blows my mind. I, I kind of am like, well, yeah. what the hell? What, are they not seeing? Are they not like, are they Even blind? though they're right. <laughs> Even like, though what? they're right. It's like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> what's wrong with you not to fall prey to this cognitive illusion? Yeah. Uh, how do you even walk around without bumping into things that don't exist? <laughs> um, so, so... That, so that's low-level perception. Like, that's the shit that the mind is supposed to be good at in the universal sense. Yeah, and uh, there's a good explanation for that one, right? It's these cultures that – like, we have cultures because we live – you know, in America, every building we go into has these right like angles right, and stuff right. like that. There's not that many right angles in nature. Yeah, there's not that right. many right angles in nature. Right. Um, and I guess it's this being accustomed to seeing right angles all the time that uh, is responsible for this illusion. Yeah, I don't know exactly how, but like I just – I believe that there is some plausible explanation for this. And the, the, the others point out though that you know not every visual – there are some visual illusions that truly are universal, right? So it's the not – pen like in the water. <laughs> yeah, right. You that. having a penis. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes illusions are powerful, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like the David Copperfield in here. <laughs> so it's not to say that would be interesting. By the way, is like could some sort of magicians have trouble? Like if you did a cross cultural experiment of magicians, <laughs> like you know, you just send uh, Doug Henson if he's still alive, or David Copperfield. He's probably like 80 now, but. You know, you, you send them to different cultures to what extent some of these, you know, various magic tricks of the trade, you know, the diverting of attention and all of that. Uh, that would be good. Yeah. Uh, copyright Tamler Summers. <laughs> 13. Nice try. All okay. right. So, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, that would be funny if a magician goes to the magic gang and they're like, that's not a trick at all. Before you know it, they have like a little blow dart in their neck and they're just what? like getting eaten. <laughs> <laughs> They're just getting fed to some. Uh, so, you know, their claim isn't that there's nothing universal. Their claim is simply that that we, we, we don't have the data. Like, that's the big point. Like, we're not – we don't have enough data to conclude yet what is and what isn't. So let's give a couple other examples, right? So first of all, in those ultimatum games that they did at 15 – they found a lot of variation in how yeah. people behave in these kinds of economic games that are tied to what their expectations of fairness are. So the Machuganga, they just didn't have any kind of expectation of uh, that there would be a fair offer, like a 50-50 so, offer. So do you uh, think, though, that, that if you – I mean, there is something very odd about going to the Matriganga and doing an ultimatum game. Do, don't you think that if they offered, like – if they came up with a game that was – I mean, if what you're trying to test is is whether people are uncomfortable with, with unfairness, don't you think that there's some some way in which which the situation really isn't – So you're, you're questioning just, the ecological validity. Exactly. Exactly. I mean – if you're going to conclude that, it seems it seems very odd to use economic exchanges in 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 these economic standard economic games. Like if you if you're like you know your buddy Joe has three sticks or five you know five sticks. <laughs> I see. I don't think so. I mean, first of all, it, it wasn't just that, right? So that you know, uh, this is a lot of other stories that accompany this of when they try to because they're a kind of society that only gathers together at certain periods of the year have a lot more trouble cooperating on, say, building a school or something like that than the Fijian population that uh, Henrik studies where everybody pitch, everybody pitches in and, and that's, 
you know, considered just the norm is that's what you do. The cooperative norms of a certain kind with the Machuganga, especially – and the certain kind being cooperating with people you don't know that aren't part of your family or a local group is just very diminished among the Machuganga compared to a lot of other – even other small-scale societies. But you, you really think that this is evidence that they don't have an aversion to unfairness, even when they're playing amongst, like, the Machuganga, like, within I, I, their in-group? and I mean, Oh, you know, within their in-group, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just uh, unfairness is defined differently. There is no real right. fairness between groups like there is within groups. Where I think probably their norms are, if anything, more strict. But yeah. I, that, that, that's, that's speculation. But the other part isn't speculation. I guess they wouldn't – I guess I'm just not shocked at all that there, there are different – there's content that needs to be filled by culture about who is a candidate for, for fairness and unfairness. One of the other things, jo, uh, Joseph Henrik's wife – I'm blanking on her name. Asshole. I know. This is sexist. Dr. Henrik. Natalie Henrik. That's what it is. Natalie Henrik. Uh, well, she did an ethnography. She did some work with the Chaldeans. You know, they have this idea about charity that it's actually morally wrong to give charity to non-Chaldeans. Like that's actually something that's uh, – that is a violation of the norm. But they're a very charitable people, but their charity – you know, the, the, we have an idea that charity begins at home, but for them it's like charity begins and ends at home. And this was an – so there's a lot of other evidence that there are pretty different conceptions. Yeah, but that's a very different, that's a very different claim, right? The, the claim that is made from the, the data of uh, coming from the ultimatum game isn't that we expect fairness from everybody. It's that in in these certain cases we act such such that we are acting irrational according to whatever maxims of economic rationality. I think it's a misunderstanding of the claim to say that see right you could show it that norms differ across groups right right the claim but I mean, that's, is that that's his point yeah maybe we'll we'll, we'll get into it the all out fight about this let's take a break okay. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. On today's episode, we're talking about Joseph Hendrick and colleagues' work on, on, on norms. It goes broader well, than you, norms. Yeah, the universality of, uh, of the human mind. The universality. We actually just had an offline argument about this. <laughs> so my but, interpretation of the results, which I just thought was plainly obvious, but I guess Dave disagrees, is that people across cultures have – different fair, fairness norms by which I mean that what I would consider unfair is different than what someone in the Machugangan culture would consider unfair. So our expectation, our fairness expectations are, dif are different, which doesn't mean that we don't want to be treated fairly, but it's what we count as being fair, being treated fairly that differs across cultures. Dave says he right. disagrees. 
Yeah, I think that 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 is a, a the point that we have different fairness norms from other people, and that we might apply the rules of fairness to other people is something that we already knew. That's pretty trivial. I think that actually their claim is much broader than this, much much more basic. And the claim is that uh, uh, the ultimatum game was used to demonstrate that people have a basic aversion to inequity, such that they're willing to sacrifice their self interest to punish somebody else who they feel has treated them unfairly. Now, it could it could be that that in fact the Metrogenga don't have an aversion to inequity, that this isn't a universal feature of the human mind, right? It could very well be that. And it's just that I don't think that, that they have evidence that this is the case yet. So I think that if you were to run the ultimatum game and manipulate, for instance, whether it was uh, somebody from your own college versus a homeless person or versus a person from another country, or you might actually show that people have varying responses. You mean even in America, offers, you would show. even in America, right. right? And there's plenty of social psychology showing, in fact, that we do treat different people uh, differently according to sort of whether we think that they're one of our in-group members or one of our out-group members and that we apply these norms differently, right? So I, I don't, I think that that would be a, a super modest claim for Joe Henrik to make based on the Machugenga that they have, that there are different, what we need to find out is whether the Machugenga using, is there any sense in which they would be motivated to violate their own self-interest to punish someone for treating them unfairly? Now, if you could show, if you can't show that, even in the Machugenga, that they actually don't care if their neighbor uh, sort of screws them over. Then you would say, look, inequity aversion isn't the universal that we thought it was. And I think I, I, this is one reason why I think that, that this is an, a bit of an ironic example, because this is the kind of theory testing where uh, something like the ultimatum game works the best. So you say, I have a model of the human mind. That it is rational and that what, what I mean by rational is that self-interest trumps. In a clear formulation, $1 is better than zero. And so, therefore, we should show that people are always motivated in a very simple scenario to take $1 over $0. And you now can falsify this hypothesis in an American population, right? You go to college kids and you show that they, in fact, do not, do not uh, have self-interest trumping their, their sense of fairness. In fact, they, their sense of fairness trumps self-interest. Now, of course, there's another question whether everybody in the world has this, but you are, but you are comfortable and confident in making the claim that, that it is not a true feature of the human mind that rationality trumps. Sure. And so, so in that sense, uh, running the ultimatum game experiment falsifies uh, a thesis, a universal a universalist thesis that had been defended and that was pretty dominant within. Uh, at least economic thinking, and I don't know about psychological thinking, but but certainly some psychologists subscribe to this view, um, yeah. more or less. I, I think maybe this is a point where I can bring up the the MOOC article. So there's an article by a psychologist named Douglas MOOC. Before uh, you uh, before you bring this up, let me just uh, yeah. tell you a piece of news that you might be interested in, and then we'll get to okay. back to this paper that you have a hard on for, and that is that they just chose a new pope. Oh. And that pope is from your home country. Buen uh, he's from Buenos Aires. Really? Yeah. Holy crap! So congratulations. They should. They should have thought. They should have. They should have put a little more effort into that. <laughs> Couple more days of black smoke. But <laughs> <laughs> as much as I, as much as I love uh, Argentinians, uh, let's just say we're high on the corruption index. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, though? Uh, if if Argentina doesn't win the World Cup, 
then I know there is no God. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Although, you know, my... this could be one of those, like, you know, again, this kind of game theory thing where the Pope is going to know that people are thinking that and... The, yeah. Some Actually, that, that didn't make any sense at all. So, uh, all right. So let's get wow. back to the to, to this paper by Douglas Mook. That yeah, so you think anticipated the Henrik objection and responded decisively to it. Well, yeah, because the Henrik objection isn't new, right? The Henrik is is it's new in that in that uh, it makes it finally has cross cultural data. The Henrik paper is a great, wonderful call to do more cross cultural studies because it is important. But let let me see if, in a nutshell, I can uh, I can summarize Mook's argument, which is. And I'll put a link to this this paper as well. It was published in 1983, but I think it's a little gem of a paper. It's called In Defense of External Invalidity. And so he points out that this this concern, this threat to to psychology and, and the social sciences maybe, that, that we are conducting studies that are externally invalid, sounds so daunting, right? Because who wouldn't want to be valid, as he points out? Um, but really, the concern is about generalizability. And that is, when we demonstrate something in the lab, how can we be sure that it is true of all human beings? And it sounds like a very right kind of concern to have, but in reality, it's it's usually not the case that that's ever the goal of a lab study. As as Mook, I think, nicely points out, it's not that we're generalizing about humanity based on one case. It's that we're starting with a general claim. We're starting with a universal sort of general claim about the human mind, and we're bringing it into the lab to test it. And so what you can do is you can actually falsify a general claim. So he points to these Harlow monkey studies. Right. Yeah, these uh, which he calls uh, elegantly constructed. Yeah, it's it's so elegant to just shock a baby monkey to put it by something that it thinks is its mom and just give it a huge electric shock and then watch it go back to this thing. That motherfucker. I, I, honestly, on. That, is, a, is that is guy still alive? I want to. I don't, I don't care. Like somebody should kick the living shit out of that guy. Somebody should attach him to one of his uh, to one of those shock do you, things. Wait, do you, I, do you feel this way about people who eat who eat meat? I feel this way about Harlow and this experiment. <laughs> this experiment pissed me off so much. Like when I read about this experiment, I was stomping around my house throwing things. I was so mad about this experiment. I don't want to hear shit about. How this experiment, an example of good psychology in action. It was an example of good monkey torturing, baby monkey torturing in action. That's what this experiment was. I'm, I'm serious. Like, I, I'm so pissed off about this. I, I'm glad and you know to hear what the, that you are now a vegetarian. And you know what the worst thing is uh, about this? Is that he never explains what the fuck this uh, experiment was supposed to show. Like he just uh, he, he, so all the, he says. The burden uh, is on Mook now to teach you basic no, 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 intro no. psych. This is what Harlow <laughs> you did. Read not, a, you should read an intro psych book. Harlow did not conclude wild monkeys in the jungle probably would choose terry cloth over wire monkeys too if offered the choice. Like well, okay, so he didn't conclude that as if like that was the criticism that he did conclude that. Well, do you re- do you, do you understand the argument by analogy that that's the criticism of many lab studies? That what? No. Okay. 
Okay, so sorry. I had to get that off my chest because I, I can't be a part. I'm, not, I'm intrigued now at your at your aversion to the suffering of animals. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk about uh, how consistent or inconsistent I might be on that front. But but that's not the subject of this. So go back okay. and talk to the. So uh, so you know from Harlow's monkeys, like the it's pr- I I think that as a demonstration, it's pretty obvious that yeah, he wasn't trying to generalize that it, that in the wild monkeys will prefer cloth to wire. Right. He was trying to to test a particular hypothesis about uh, attachment and and the and give the giving of nur- food right as nourishment. And with this, albeit inhumane study, and actually Harlow, I have it, I have it on good authority that Harlow was in fact an asshole um, and very very low on empathy. But but I thought that you would find a kindred spirit in him. I, I'll have no <laughs> empathy when he gets his ass kicked. So he's dead. Him. He's dead. Good. You won. No, did he? Was it a painful <laughs> was, death or was it? Was, uh, it was actually a bunch of monkeys got the wire and just formed it into a shiv and just stabbed him multiple times. I love that. <laughs> uh, so it's it would be weird to conclude that that in fact was the goal of Harlow's studies and that it was therefore a failed goal because that wasn't the goal. Like it was very different. So so Mook says you know in in many cases lab studies have. Uh, uh, goals that are not about generalizability at all. They're not trying to to infer the truth about all human beings from what they what they show in the lab. What they're trying to do is is often cases falsify a, a hypothesis that you sh- that you ought to see this in everybody, or simply demonstrate something an existence proof. Demonstrate that something in fact can happen. Um, so to so. For, say you want to demonstrate the limits of memory. If you bring if you have a theory that says the limits of memory are say, five chunks of information, and you bring people into the lab and you show, in fact, 20% of people can, can memorize 20 chunks of information, that is a valuable piece of information. So uh, Mook points out the various cases in which it would be weird to assume that our goal was to conclude on the basis of a lab study something just that should be observed across all human beings. So there's a quote, since you're always reading quotes, I, I'm, I'm going to read one. Which I think is the, the well because it requires brilliant. research. That's why you haven't been doing it uh, up till this point in our. Well, what I've always test. noticed, when you, what I always notice when you read is that it also requires reading ability. So I'm going to just show people how I can read clearly without stuttering. <laughs> so, so Mook says, everyone knows that we make experimental settings artificial for a reason. We do it to control for extraneous variables and to permit separation of factors that do not come separately in nature as you find it. But that leaves us wondering how, having stepped out of nature, we get back in again. How do our findings apply to the real-life setting in all its complexity? I think there are times when the answer has to be, they don't. But we then may add, something else does. It is called understanding. I think that is the gist of his argument, which is, you can discover a lot about the human mind from very constrained settings. And, And I think most of psychology actually has this as its goal. Now, I agree, though, that, as you said in the beginning... We often end our articles with some claim about, you know, this shows something about human nature. But we're just wrong in our in 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 the way that we talk about it. We, we you're just trying to actually, self-promote. Yeah, well, to, to put it bluntly, we're trying to make our findings seem important in in this sort of generalizability kind of way. Right. When in fact, I think we should we ought to just admit that that was never our goal in the first place. Okay, so let me ask you about that. So, yeah. um, and I'll use an example from this article that you love so much. This is a study that I can fully support because it involves giving people access to alcohol. And yeah. so, so he says he was testing the hypothesis 
that alcohol reduces tension. And so here is an experiment. Now, this is an, a great example of what he's talking about where that is a universal claim, right, about what alcohol is for so that if you can conduct an experiment where uh, it's a tense situation but people don't drink alcohol, then, you know, that may, that, that may falsify it. But here is where the external validity I think, can come into play. So in this experiment, as he describes it, this is Higgins and Marlick, 1973, and I, and I will try to read this without... Stuff, were you like 10 studying. years old when this got published? Uh, briefly, the subjects were... I was... <laughs> <laughs> I was just two years old, actually. Uh, briefly, the subjects were made either highly anxious or not so anxious by the threat of electric shock. What would you do as psychologists if you couldn't just shock primates, people, or animals? It would be really tough for you. Uh, well, here we're just threatening. Them. By the threat of electric shock and were permitted access to alcohol as desired. If alcohol reduces tension and if people drink it because it does so, then the anxious subjects should have drunk more and they did not. Now, here's where I think ecological validity has some serious relevance, right? Because the kind of tension, when people say that uh, people drink alcohol to reduce tension that you're talking about, right, is, is, is really important, right? Tension that alcohol tends to reduce or that, say, I would think, from my layman's perspective, that alcohol can help with and thank God for it, right, is the kind of tension that is tension that accompanies your your day, right? It, it, it's not the kind of tension that you would get in a lab, and especially in a lab where you don't know what they're doing to you. You don't know what the effects of an electric shock are. You don't know if you should be drinking alcohol or not drinking alcohol. This is a, it's, it's, th these are two different categories. That tension, yeah. and I, it might be a kind of tension, and the kind of tension that I think people think, alcohol, and rightly think, uh, alcohol can help uh, reduce. And so that's where, although he hates the term, he calls it, what does he call it, a per term or something like that, uh, external validity, that is, yeah. that's one where if you're going to falsify a theory, right, you need to falsify it with uh, what the act theory is actually uh, I, making yeah. a claim toward. No, no, no one has the hypothesis that we drink alcohol when we're afraid that we're about to get uh, electric shocks. I'm so, I'm so glad, Tamler, that you raised this concern. Good, because it gets to a, a very very critical distinction, which is your your concern is not about external validity at all. It's about internal validity, and what you're pointing to is that the manipulation of tension that they used is not the right manipulation of tension. Now, it could be that there's a theory that says by tension I simply mean any anxiety, whether it be lab or not. So you could say, well, look, this lab manipulation induced anxiety but it didn't induce the kind of tension that my theory actually predicts. Right. Or it could be that, uh, that it doesn't even induce anxiety. So your concern is about the measure, I mean, about the manipulation itself and whether that's capturing what the theory predicts. Now, imagine you came up with a better, a, a better manipulation of anxiety and tension and that you actually had a, a, a very sort of nuanced manipulation where you, you told people that they were, that their exam was sooner than they thought it was going to be. Um, it's still within the same limited population, but it is actually a closer a closer manipulation of the kind of tension that we're talking about. Then you could conclude that that you had falsified the hypothesis, or you had provided evidence that in fact tension did increase. But that's a very different concern than external validity. Whether you could you could you're still 
ex- in, in terms of external validity, you could still only generalize to... No, 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 but I thought external validity was not about generalizability. It was about, it is. does this actually... Is this the thing that we're actually talking about out in the world? I thought, uh, as Mook says, that could be... External validity be, is no, generalizability. No, he says, in fact, that sometimes ex- something can be externally valid but not generalizable because it would be different across cultures... That those are two different things. Application to the real world is external validity. But that doesn't mean the real world every place in the world. It just means the real world someplace in the world. Right. But your concern is actually about whether or not the induction of of tension is a valid induction of tension. And that's an internal validity concern. Right. So you admit that you so long as you had a good a good manipulation, all you're saying is that this wasn't a a real test of the hypothesis because they used the wrong induction of anxiety. Yeah. But but, but, yeah, it wasn't a real falsification because they used a bad measure of tension and specifically not the kind of tension that in the real world we use alcohol. We I don't maybe they don't do this in uh, in other countries. (laughs) But that people say in America use alcohol to try to alleviate. Yeah. So so it could be that their theory just posited that 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 by tension, they mean the kind of tension induced from from daily stressors and from the threat of electric shock in the lab, in which case this would be uh, a valid manipulation. But, but here's where but I think then then what is the point of the experiment if it's not if it, it's not what, externally valid as I define it and as I think as he defines it? What's the point of this experiment? What does it show? It shows that something we didn't believe was the case and that has no application in real life isn't the case then who cares well let's separate out the two criticisms then because one is suppose that that they used a different manipulation of tension right right that they could use in the lab so it could be that that's it's just bad science because they didn't they didn't capture what we mean it would be like it, it would be like if i did a study and i was like we induced disgust in in 30 participants and when I say we induce disgust, I mean we made them read Dr. Seuss's Cat in the Hat, right? right? And you'd be like, well, that's not an induction of disgust, at least not not what I mean by disgust. That seems like the criticism that you're leveling on this. Uh, that's not tension the way I mean it, right? That's not right. tension the way I would have heard. And so that that's a very different – that's not about external validity. That one is It's isn't. true. Right. Yeah. right, right. So so the question though that if you had like a decent manipulation of disgust or one of tension – and you still fail to find those results, I think you could conclude something. That is, we can't say that universally tension causes uh, an increase in alcohol, but it could be that in some cases it does, and then you just proceed. And that's it's a slower progress than we might want, but it's progress. But you have to I, – I completely agree, right? So then the question, though, is you want to design your experiment so that at least it makes progress – towards some sort of insight about human psychology. It doesn't have to be universal human psychology, but some sort of human psychology as it manifests itself in the in in everyday life in real life or at least in well, real no, life i mean it doesn't so it could be so like let's take priming uh, experiments so i prime you with some you know s- some subliminal flash of a smile on your computer screen and now uh, and now i show that you are more likely to um, to give your teacher good ratings this afternoon Ooh, right? can you do that so yeah <laughs> uh, maybe uh, now, it would be weird to say, dude, no one gets smiley faces flashed, right? That's a weird thing to – that That would be a weird claim to make. Like that's 
I don't know why people are fucking around with subliminal flashing of smiley faces. When does that ever happen? I don't care if it increases teacher ratings because that's not what I mean. But in fact, that gives us a real good insight into into how the mind works. That it is processing some stimuli, subthreshold, in the absence of other over, you know, countervening forces that might actually give rise to different judgment. And so that says something about the description of the human mind. And it may say it may never truly describe a, a situation that was ever found in the real world. But okay, good. But we, so that's a great yeah. example. I actually think we're making more. I know. I'm so progress. Than we normally do. This, this is weird. This feels awkward. Don't. don't uh, it's like we had good sex for the first time <laughs> ever. Don't expect after being it. married. <laughs> don't expect exactly. <laughs> this is like the Kama Sutra of our podcast. <laughs> uh, so the I agree with you that that would be an interesting result. But part of the reason it's an interesting result is because, A, people really do... Um, <laughs> because you want to flash smiley faces for your class. <laughs> yeah, because that is something that people have interest in, right? Getting good yeah. evaluations on their on their teach well, their teaching evaluations. I mean, you don't care because you have tenure, and I guess I have tenure too, but I still <laughs> care about teaching. But and, and not only that, but if that really worked, you know, that would be something that you could manipulate and you could use not just for teacher ratings, but for advertising, you know, and uh, for advertising, yeah. for ratings of movies on IMDb or Netflix it's, or something it's like true. that. It's true. It's true. But here's the problem, with, which which is there is such a temptation to conclude this. And it, it does seem that that, uh, that that is where the mind goes naturally. That is to say, like, how can I use this in real life? But in reality, reality is so messy that like in the in the time between getting a smiley f- face subliminally flashed, you might have you might be at a movie theater and they flash something subliminally in your and your theater is and your, your girlfriend is holding your hand. So you can't go get a drink or something or, you know, there are all kinds of reasons that these things might might uh, not work in the real world. But that doesn't mean that it didn't shed light on how the mind works. But I think that this general point, though, that, that you raise is is critical to understanding why this is controversial at all, which is I think we want to conclude that these studies, the goal of these studies is to say something true about the real world. And and I think that we're doing a bad job as scientists of communicating this. We still we we do end our papers by saying like, and this points to like some real world phenomena that might be of interest. What if you got a subliminal fl- smiley face flashed at you when you were in the movie theater? Right. You know, and which is why also you get written up in Slate and you get written exactly. up in the New York Times and you get exactly. and David Brooks writes most of his columns about uh, the work <laughs> of, this kind of you know Jonathan Haidt and other psychologists. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. And so I'll give you an example from art. So we, we did a study. This was with, with uh, Eric Helzer where we, we, we had people fill out a political questionnaire next to a hand sanitizer or not the wrong thing to conclude is that therefore your political attitudes are shaped largely by whether or not you're sending a cent i think this is a fleeting small effect i think that it probably lasted like three minutes tops i don't think that it would influence voting behavior i don't think that it would be a good strategy for the republican party to put hand sanitizers in the commercials right i think it just says something interesting about the way the mind works and in particular i think that Temporarily stimulating people's thoughts about disease and disease avoidance can shift the way they think about the world, albeit in a small way. And and so I always resist when people are like, oh, so how can we use this? Because I'm like, probably not at all. Right. You know, and if, if it were the case that that actually caused people to vote Republican, fuck, we're screwed. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> we're fucking screwed. Uh, it's so, but I think we just need to do a better job of embracing the fact that sh- most of our shit isn't applicable directly like that. But at least again, that one you're right. I mean, this is maybe there's no there's not going to be a hard and fast rule about this, but that one is it does say something interesting about how the mind works. Whereas I don't think the alcohol study does. I don't think no, a it fact- tells us anything about that particular hypothesis or B tells us anything interesting about how the mind works. It just it, it really doesn't tell us much more than people in in this kind of situation aren't more likely to drink alcohol than people, you know, who are Yeah, there. you know, it might have it would have been more informative had it shown a positive result. Like had they actually demonstrated a real Right, thing. exactly. And that's why it's a weird it's a weird example to give, but they wouldn't know that before like going into it, right? Right. That's so, right. it's just it's true that you can conclude more from a significant um, finding than you can from a null finding. Than a null finding. But, All right, so yeah. uh, I, I think we need to make this a part two, right? Yeah, maybe we can keep talking about culture more broadly. Yeah, well, uh, we, we I, won't I, necessarily talk about this particular uh, debate, but we'll talk about different. Because I actually have there's more stuff I want to say. We didn't mention, especially when it comes to ethics. I'm really, I'm really curious about what. Yeah, let's uh, maybe the next time we'll we'll see how some of this might apply specifically to to ethics. I can't believe we didn't mention how he leads off the weird paper by the description of the uh, children who ingest the semen of their <laughs> elders in this drive. And he, he's not doing it like his point. It's, a, yeah. it's almost like a, uh, a in, philosopher. In contrast, the nearby Kaluli maintain that the male initiation is only properly done by ritually <laughs> delivering the semen through the initiate's anus, not his mouth. And hey, this relates to they just chose a new pope, right? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> on that note, we should probably end it. Rate us on iTunes by by Amazon through our. Link. Oh yeah, go on Amazon, buy your expensive <laughs> items by pressing that link, and then everything you buy on Amazon, we, we would get a little cut of, and we can use to improve the. We quality should say of actually. Show. Yeah, actually, Bunny Sandifer, who who is a fan of ours on the Very Bad Wizards page and is an audio geek and gave us lots of good feedback. And on the basis of her feedback, I started doing some research into some audio gear. And we would like to do interviews in person. And we just we, we found like this awesome piece of audio gear. It's like 300 bucks and we're poor. Yeah. So so buy, buy a plasma. And all, it, you don't have to give us any money. You just have to buy what you would normally buy on Amazon. <laughs> That's right. And rate us on iTunes. All right. <laughs> thanks. Uh, join us next time for part two. We think of this episode... Uh, a very bad business. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard. Oh, dude, you have got to edit that out. I promise.